Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, May 24th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Woman tumbles 30 feet off waterfall while taking photo. All right. Happens. Kind of sad. It's classic burying the lead. I'll read to you some of the story. Authorities say a woman trying to take photos at the top of a waterfall in Pennsylvania fallen about 30 feet and suffered serious injuries. A ranger at McConnell's Mills State Park in Slippery Rock Township said that, whoa, 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 in where? In Slippery Rock Township at Kildew Falls, in fact. A woman in Slippery Rock fell on Slippery Rocks. And yet, this is not the perfect test case for this. This that I have here This witch I have here? This piece of paper I have here, which is taken from today's Wall Street Journal. Perhaps it ran in a paper near you. It is a full-page ad taken out by Facebook. Together, we can fight false news. Together. Yes, you and I, Facebook. That's right, Facebook. Put the onus on us, you, America's eighth largest company that has advanced algorithms that actually, the algorithms do actually rewire how we think. Yeah, but let's do it together, because I could do that too. You know, victim, victimizer, hand in hand. Put the onus on us. Put the onus on a guy named Stan who works in a foundry and has a couple kids and somehow has a print subscription to the Wall Street Journal, because it's really his job, not your job, Facebook, to uh, ferret out this fake news. So I have found an article that will be our test case. We will go down Facebook's uh, 10 points to fighting fake news together. Here's the article. Man caught... Filling hotel bathtub with potatoes while wearing a bra and high on MDMA. That is our story. All right. Number one is be skeptical of the headlines. That I am. A man wearing a bra? (laughs) And the stuff about the potatoes and the drugs. Here's some detail from this headline when Judge Peter Henry asked James Johnson why he was filling up a bath with potatoes. He replied, it felt like the right thing to do. Still, though a logical response, I still am skeptical. Two, look at the link closely. Look at the, what what am I, Linus Torvalds over here? Who who am I, Mr. Robot? What do I know about codes? Looks like a link. Metro.co.uk, a bunch of numbers. Man, hyphen, caught, hyphen, filling, caught, hotel, caught, bathtub, uh, right? Earth to Zuckerberg. Most of us don't even know which key is the backslash and which key is the front slash. Look at codes. Three, investigate the source. As I said, it was the metro.co.uk. Seems to be a metropolitan newspaper in the United Kingdom. Great, that helps. Four, watch for unusual formatting. Well, the part where they put the the bathtub next to the potato, that, that seemed kind of unusual. Five, consider the photos. All right, here's the photo. It is a bathtub, a claw-footed bathtub, not the kind that you'd think an MDMA user who checks into a damn market hotel in England might use, and a stock photo of a bunch of potatoes. Now they uh, say, Facebook in the ad says, false news stories often contain manipulated images. Sometimes the photos may appear authentic, but can be taken out of context. You can search for the photo or image to verify where it came from. So I did this. I ran a reverse image search in Google. And it said they were potatoes. 
Then I went to a couple other sites and I searched the image. I kept getting back potato and bathtub. This really seemed like an actual incident of a potato and a bathtub both being used in a photo, although perhaps not at the same time. Six, inspect the dates. No, you guys, they're potatoes. They weren't dates. Maybe you're the ones who are high on MDMA. Seven, check the evidence. Check the evidence. Isn't check the evidence, number seven, very similar to number three, investigate the source? Under investigate the source, it says, ensure that the story is written by a source that you trust with a reputation for accuracy. Under check the evidence, it says, check the author's sources to confirm that they are accurate. You don't have 10 bullet points. You got nine bullet points. You're just using synonyms. These are pretty much the same thing. Investigate the source. Check the evidence. Consider the photos. Consider the lobster. Consider yourself at home. Consider yourself part of your family. All right. Back to the list. Eight. Look at other reports. If no other news source is reporting the same story, it may indicate that the story is false or an exclusive. It's a good way to rule out exclusives, breaking stories. Watergate, Woodward, Bernstein, who the hell are these guys? So I did. I looked at other reports for this story. It was in Lad Bible. Lad Bible had it. The Echo had it. I'm going to guess the Echo is not a great source for original reporting, though this whole exercise seems to uh, be erecting some guardrails against original reporting. But the way I found another source... They had a video of this. It was one of those online videos with a robot reading the story. A drugged up man was caught filling up a hotel bath with potatoes whilst wearing a bra during an epic five-day MDMA binge. The robot did tell me a suspicious detail beyond, you know, the whole potatoes and the drugs thing. Doc Johnson, 30, was caught by officers wearing a woman's bra over his shirt and carrying a bag of spuds as he entered the travel in Eastleigh. A woman's bra? That is either redundant or overly gender normative, but I don't think real news would use such a term. Okay, flags raised. How else can we together, you and I, Facebook, can we figure out this story? And here's the last big point they have. Is the story a joke? Is it a joke? I ask. I don't know. I think not. Because if it were a joke, I think it would go something like this. James Kellum, prosecuting, told the court hotel staff phone the police after smelling cannabis in the room. So I guess you could say it was a baked potato. Or perhaps if it were a joke, it would have noted that because of the presence of the bra, the suspect was not au natural, but the potatoes were au gratin. Or maybe it could have gone so far as to say... If this man was arrested in the Philippines, where President Duterte has promised the execution of drug users, Mr. Johnson may have fried. But since it's England, only the potatoes will. And that, my friends, is Facebook's helpful guide to not believing all the stories published on Facebook. On the show today, I spiel about a huge international win and a slight setback for Donald Trump. The setback, he pissed off a hostile nuclear power. The win, he brought to heal an unemployed backup QB. But first... Another football story. This one was reported one way, but the truth turned out to be something different. Here's my friend Derek John talking about the Steubenville rape case. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the summer of 2012 in Steubenville, Ohio, a young girl, a high school student, was raped at a party. We could now say raped. The case has been adjudicated. And the rapists were members of the Steubenville High School football team. You probably heard about this case. It got a lot of notoriety, infamy. It was held up as an example of, well, a lot of things, of prosecutorial indifference, of justice delivered by Twitter, of rape culture, of football culture. Joining me now is Derek John. He, along with fellow journalist Anders Kelto, reported on this story for an Audible series called Game Breaker. This was a few years ago. Now there's a new documentary out about the Steubenville case. And I wanted to talk to Derek. He and I have been working together on the Upon Further Review podcast series. He's the executive producer in that. And Derek and I got to talking about this case. And I said, I think people really need to hear what you found in your reporting. So Derek joins me now. Hello, Derek. Hey, Mike. So, what was the what was the series itself where you looked at this case? What was the uh, what was the general thrust of the series? Well, basically, it was it had been five years since this notorious rape case, which got all this attention. And we originally went into it just thinking, you know, what's changed? Where is Steubenville now? Where are the people who live there? Kind of, what do they make of this? Have, have things changed? And what we actually ended up stumbling upon was a completely different story that had never really been told, which was from the perspective of the local prosecutor who actually solved the case and brought these two uh, students to justice. Her name is Jane Hanlon. She's kind of the unsung hero. And she is was in all of the coverage at the time when this when this all went down was sort of seen as one of the villains whose son was also on the football team and who was part of this alleged cover-up, essentially trying to sweep this all under the rug to protect the football team. And what we found was a completely different story. Okay, so if we reset, if we remind people of what was reported in 2012, there was this rape and members of the football team were said to have committed it. And those members of the team were still allowed to play. And 
Somehow online, it gained fire, it became a cause, and the allegation was that since members of the DA's office had ties to the school or the football team, they were at least slow walking the prosecution. Am I at least setting it up to uh, remind everyone at least what the, what the public perception of the case was at the time? Yes, you're close. But again, those little details matter. So actually, the two boys who had been arrested never suited up for one game that season. This this rape occurred actually uh, during a, a, a series of parties the night of the first preseason scrimmage. And so they are actually arrested before they even play a regular game. Now, there have been some bystanders, some some eyewitnesses who also were football players. They continued to be on the team. But at that time, again, you know, the case hadn't been adjudicated yet. No one really knew exactly what their role was. People just kind of assume the worst. Okay, so you talk about a character who is v- legitimately very important to publicizing this story. She's a, a blogger who is from Steubenville but lived in California, right? Alexandra Goddard. Yeah, Alexandria Goddard had lived in Steubenville for a few years, but she was living in California when this occurred and just happened to stumble upon this this little news item mentioning the arrest of these two football players. And this kind of got her thinking, well, wait a minute, this is Steubenville where football is king. And I'm seeing just this little news item. This seems sort of fishy to me. So she's the one who kind of, you know, stumbles on this and starts you know, manically grabbing screenshots of the the players' Twitter accounts and social media and Instagram and all this stuff. And she finds all of this really, you know, awful stuff. I mean, it it, it should be said, you know, like the a lot of the Twitter activity. And, and this is back when Twitter was used by teenagers almost like like text messages. Like they had no idea that this stuff was was all public. But they're just going back and forth saying these really terrible things about this girl, making fun of her. And and so she grabs all this stuff and, and, and starts to kind of worry that, well, wait a minute, these guys are going to get away with it because this is Steubenville and there are football players. And of course, the team will rally around them and protect them. What she doesn't realize, and again, she's doing all this from like California at this point. What she doesn't right. realize is that two weeks before that, Jane Hanlon, again, the prosecutor, had already found all this stuff. She had all this stuff. She was building her case. No one was going to get away with this. But this is kind of where these two narratives diverge and, you know, trouble is on the horizon. How did the idea that this wasn't being prosecuted or taken seriously proliferate? So it's it's something that happens, I think, a lot a lot of times in, in certain cases where, you know, it's there's an active investigation and the prosecutors, law enforcement, they don't talk about it. And we've seen this in a, a number of cases. And a lot of times, you know, people on social media sort of fill that vacuum. And I think in some ways, it's also just a larger maybe commentary on our lack of faith in our institutions and the justice system that, you know, someone like Alexandria Goddard, who's basically just like an an amateur crime blogger, she essentially foments this narrative that football rules in this town. And she just sort of frames it like that, starts blogging about it. And everyone, again, just kind of jumps on it. And that's, that's the narrative that takes hold. Did she do anything wrong? It's hard to say that she did anything criminally wrong, but I I think it's fair to say that she was probably a little reckless, 
probably was a little too active in kind of fanning the flames. I mean, where this case really goes off the rails is she reaches out. I mean, she actively, she's like tweeting at Nancy Grace and Roseanne Barr and every celebrity that that she can think of. And at some point she reaches out to this guy with the hacker collective Anonymous. And that's when uh, you know, things really blow up. And this guy, this guy named Derek Lostutter, who who we also talked to, he gets involved, and then he takes it to the next level by you know cr- making this intimidating video. He starts threatening to dox all the players on the team, release all That's their released, information. Yeah, release all the information so everyone knows where they live. Does the same for uh, the prosecution, and you detail how this uh, affected the prosecutor. Right. I mean, it got so bad to that that at some point it starts to maybe threaten the case itself. Again, you have to remember the case is essentially solved in the first two weeks. Jane Hanlon does her job, you know, because she does know these these boys, these players, because of her son. Actually, she's able to identify their Twitter handles, and and all of this evidence is is actually that's kind of a plus. And then at some point she recuses herself because she says, "Look, I know them. This is a conflict of interest," and she does the right thing, but. Uh, somehow it gets twisted in a way that again she is trying to protect these these people it's a small town they all know each other and she becomes the target of the worst vitriol online hey jane my name's scott i'm calling from florida um i raped a couple girls in ohio and i heard that you're the one to go to to get me off the charges so um i just give me a call back if you could uh like i said i, I know I know your son, and I know he likes to rape girls too, and and his buddies. So I figured, you know, you could help me out with that since I hear you're helping a lot of people out. You. Jane Hamlin deserves to be fired. What kind of law office hires a prosecutor that doesn't prosecute rapists? I guess when she's protecting her own son, it's okay. These people will be in jail soon, and Jane will be unemployed soon. I wonder what would happen if somebody raped you, Ms. Hanlon. Hypothetically speaking, of course. And then somebody in a position of influence covered up their involvement. I wonder how you'd feel, Ms. Hanlon. Have a nice day. How were, let's say you're uh, an activist or someone who cares, and this is a little before Me Too, and you're really suspicious that the favorite sons of a small town that's hard on its luck will get justice when they've uh, committed a crime against the less favored daughters. Can you at least see that trying to light a fire under prosecution? I mean, that's what activists do. Absolutely. And so we spent a long time with both Alexandria Goddard, the blogger, and also Derek Lostutter, the guy with Anonymous. And they both, you know, I think in some ways had good intentions. They thought they were, you know, striving for this justice that had been denied so many times before. And I can say that the case did rely in large part on eyewitness testimony. And that was part of the problem later on when Anonymous got involved is they started going after a lot of these witnesses. And the special prosecutor did say at the end of the case that that had a a real chilling effect and, and in some ways jeopardized the eventual outcome. Okay, so if the prosecution did everything right and they did get their convictions, although they were, it was in a juvenile court, right? Right. So they were yes. found, um, it's delinquent, it's not guilty, but same yeah. idea. Right. 
let's stipulate the excesses of some of the activists, especially the ones who went over the top and thought that the best way that they could uh, protect women and advance society is to threaten to rape and kill a female prosecutor. Okay, let's put that aside. I do think the institutions, there are some institutions that have something to answer for. First of all, members of the Steubenville football team coaching staff did not come off great. They harassed reporters. They acted like bullies. That's absolutely right. It's like there are so many, it's, you know, one of those things you sort of look back and it's just, you see all of these missteps that like where, where the temperature could have been, you know, turned down on this case, it actually went the other way. And there's this uh, pretty big blockbuster New York Times piece that's written a few months after this. And one of the reporters tried to get a quote from the coach, the head coach. And again, he is this venerated, you know, 35-year veteran revered in this town. The field is named after him, right? So very much in that Joe Paterno mold. He could have come out with a statement that said, look, we don't really know all the facts, but of course we're going to hold my players accountable. They've been arrested, blah, blah, blah. And instead, yeah, he threatens this reporter. He says, you know, if you're going to get yours and if you don't, I'll find your family. I mean, just completely, you know, raises the suspicions even more of everyone who who reads that. And so again, on the on on the surface, it appears as if they are circling the wagons, as if they are very defensive. And I think that in, in some ways is just a function of he's he's not a very media savvy guy. I mean, I don't think he even knew what the internet really was yeah. at that point. And 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 maybe also kind of a dick. Like <laughs> that's yeah. possible too. Yeah. That yes, very much. I mean he's a, he's a very gruff old school guy, does not have time for reporters. Right. So there's this new documentary out, Roll Red Roll, which is the cry of the Steubenville football team. In the documentary, Alexandria Goddard, who is the blogger, she's uh, featured prominently. Also, there's another project that Brad Pitt is apparently pursuing a film with the uh, anonymous hacker as his protagonist. Uh, What would you just like to add or what would you like people who see this, if the Brad Pitt thing ever gets made. What would you like them to know that your reporting uh, found about this case? Well, first of all, on the Brad Pitt project, uh, it it will be interesting to see if if that ever actually gets off the ground because Derek Lostutter right now is currently serving three years in a federal prison for uh, all of the illicit hacking activities. And, you know, I mean, what he did did amount to, uh, you know, federal crimes. Um, As far as the new documentary, unfortunately, I have not seen it. I know it played at Tribeca recently. I will say, though, based on some of the reviews and and write-ups, it seems to, to sort of put Alexandria Goddard, the blogger, up on a kind of pedestal as, again, the hero who initially found all of the social media stuff. And if it weren't for her, it would have never been exposed. And I think, again, that's just wrong from what we found. Um, you know, local law enforcement, Jane Hanlon, the prosecutor, were they were on top of this, you know, from day one. And Again, she had her mostly, she, you know, she basically stayed quiet. She stayed silent all of these five years. We were the first reporters that she really told her story to. So in some ways it's understandable, but, you know, the consequences of that is that if you Google her today, there's still like, you know, a petition to disbar her. Um, and it's just the, you know, it's one of those things where the, the sort of truth never caught up with the kind of false narrative that was out there. So what? What's the legacy of this? Now we're seeing, you know, other media grapple with it, perhaps defining the legacy. But what do you think the real legacy of not our perception, but the reality of the Steubenville rape case is? I think it's twofold. I think on the one hand, the the positive that came out of this, I think this really did spur a kind of reckoning with 
sexual assault, with some of this sort of bad behaviors, especially by, you know, men, perhaps even jocks who kind of have this culture of entitlement. The negative legacy of this is what happened when, again, Anonymous gets involved and there's really vicious intimidation and, you know, vile stuff. And I think it just shows, again, the danger of this kind of internet vigilantism where where they if if they had just left it to the authorities it, it, it just never needed to happen. Derek John along with being the executive producer of the Upon Further Review podcasts uh, reported out and was the producer for the Audible series Game Breaker. Three of those episodes, he and fellow journalist Anders Kelto used to report on the Steubenville rape case, showing how it was certainly horrible, but not a cover-up. Thank you so much, Derek. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. President Trump and I both have something in common. Well, a few things. We're New Yorkers. We pronounce the word huge. How are you supposed to say it? Huge. That's what we say. We say huge. Uh, Melania doesn't really want to touch either of us. And we each have a catchphrase. Him is, you're fired. And me is, gee willikers. That's a glaring violation of the emoluments clause. But here's another thing. We were both interviewed by Brian Kilmeade about sports. My book tour for Upon Further Review took me to the Fox Studios to discuss Upon Further Review with Kilmeade, who told me Muhammad Ali was his favorite athlete. And Kilmeade went to Trump after an anti-MS-13 panel discussion. And here's what they talked about. Some breaking news while you were in there. The NFL has made a decision on something that means a lot to you and a lot of other Americans. The NFL has, the owners have voted unanimously to approve a new national anthem rule that says if you're not going to stand, stay in the locker room. If you go to the field, you have to stand. If you have a protest, your team's going to get fined. This is the first time you're hearing this. What's your reaction, Mr. President? Well, I think that's good. I don't think people should be staying in locker rooms, but still, I think it's good. You have to stand proudly for the national anthem. Well, you shouldn't be playing. You shouldn't be there. Maybe you shouldn't be in the country. You have to stand proudly for the national anthem. And the NFL owners did the right thing if that's what they've done. Maybe they shouldn't be in the country. Maybe we need to punish those citizens who do not salute the flag. And you're telling me, Mr. Trump, that you couldn't find anything in common with Kim Jong-un? Nothing between the autocrat who enforces compulsory military patriotism and the guy who would like to do so, I mean, right after he has a military parade through his capital. So the NFL, as you know, has banned players from kneeling during the anthem. I predict no player will actually attempt it. I predict teams will just stay in the locker room before the anthem. Why would they risk dissension or negative attention when all they really want to do, the players, is they want to play football? Even the players who have knelt, they prioritize football. They prioritize their duties and their teammates and the team. It's just that if they're on the field during the anthem, they thought they had the right, perhaps even the responsibility, to act like an American who has free speech and free will. So if fines even do stay in place and the union can challenge them. I don't know if they will. I think it's quite possible they won't really be an issue because teams will want to avoid the controversy. And then what happens? What happens when that horrible specter of adults dissenting from forced patriotism, what happens when that's eradicated from the NFL? And what happens then if ratings don't rebound? Then what? Then where do the owners go when they need someone to blame? 
There are the other factors depressing ratings, like too many games on TV, but that puts money in the owner's pockets, like concussions, that's too existential, that the mass trend of cord cutting or not watching network TV, there's no way they could tackle that. Where's that put the owners? This is the one problem they think they can address, and I don't think it's the problem that's causing the ratings decline. But the NFL is a conservative league, and by conservative league, I mean the owners are conservative. The owners of the Texans, the Jaguars, the Rams, the Patriots, the Jets in Washington all gave a million dollars to the Trump inauguration and the Bucks and Browns each gave hundreds of thousands each. The owners think that NFL fans are like them and their peer groups, but they're not. 538 did a poll and a study of the political leanings of fan bases. Only six teams have fan bases more Republican than Democrat. The average NFL team has a fan base that's plus six Democrat. I correlated this with the uh, PVI, Partisan Voter Index, that's put together by the Cook Political Report. A House district that had a PVI of six would be something like Rhode Island's second district, a very liberal district, or, you know, pretty liberal district. Let's talk about states. Here are states that if they were a football team would have the same Partisan Voter Index. Delaware and Connecticut. And Oregon is actually more Republican than the average NFL team. And guess what? Delaware, Connecticut, Oregon, all those states have two Democratic senators and a Democratic governor. And of the 11 members of Congress they have, 10 are Democrat and one's Republican. If an NFL team were a state, it would be pretty deep blue. So I think this whole thing might be stupid, but it's also offensive. In order to emphasize how much freedom America offers, we must take away the freedom of some Americans to dissent. So let me read a key passage from a Supreme Court ruling. This was in the 1940s. America was vulnerable, but it was also patriotic. The Supreme Court ruled on a law that would force citizens to stand and have to salute the flag. And the court wrote, to believe that patriotism will not flourish if patriotic ceremonies are voluntary and spontaneous instead of compulsory and routine is to make an unflattering estimate of the appeal of our institutions to free minds. And that, in a phrase, is what I think the NFL's ruling does today. And that's it for today's show. You know, this was episode number 1000. Thank you all for listening. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, senior producer Mary Wilson, and Steve Lichtai, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. For 1,000 episodes, I gave myself the break of having to think of hysterical jokes for all of them. But I thank you for listening all this time. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.